0: Profiles in Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right, hello and welcome everyone to Profiles in Strategy. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. This is episode 28, um, The Naval Theorists, specifically talking about Alfred Thayer Mahan and Sir Julian Corbett. Uh, Joining me today, uh, a number of colleagues from the U.S. Naval War College. First, two of my colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department, Dr. Jim Holmes. Jim, welcome. And Dr. Kevin McCraney. Kevin, welcome. And new with us this week, uh, Dr. Milan Vago from the Joint Military Operations Department. Welcome, Milan. Thanks. All right, so we'll get going here. So, um, so Kevin, I thought we'd start this one with you. Um, talking about naval theorists, which obviously is the U.S. Naval War College. It's, it's kind of our bread and butter. And, um, you know, we're a maritime nation, so that also kind of, uh, so I'll skip the, the part about why do we study this stuff? Uh, <laughs> and, um, and talk about, so um, Alfred Thayer Mahan, Captain, US Navy, uh, served in the, in the Civil War as part of the blockade force, um, uh, blockading the Confederacy. And, and, but Sir Julian Corbett is, is a Brit, and he's a civilian, a civilian uh, professor. So two very different um, uh, life perspectives coming into being naval theorists how would you say that uh, that affects how they how they write?
1: Thank you John and it's a great question. Uh, to me it's not so much uh, one is civilian and the other one is a military officer to me one is from Britain and the other one is from the United States. I think that is the bigger difference between the two of them in the fact that, Mahan is writing in the 1880s, 1890s, and beyond to his death in 1914 from the perspective of the United States and where the United States should position itself in the world. His concept of sea power is, uh, I think, a grand strategy he sees for the future of the United States, and he plays that out and along and a great deal. On the other hand, uh, Corbett is writing from the perspective of Britain uh, from the country in the world that has a worldwide empire and the greatest Navy at that time in the world. So he's writing from the perspective of a dominant Naval power and he's trying to figure out not if Britain should become a sea power, that decision had been made over a century before he was even born. The real question for him was, how do you use that Navy in the international environment, particularly an increasingly competitive international environment with the rise of other naval powers? That's my take on it, John. Thank
2: you.
0: Mm -hmm. Jim, go ahead.
2: Yeah, that's a uh, that's a great point, and I would just uh, I would just sort of uh, add to what Kevin was just talking about. I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, hand does a, he does a great job uh, talking about the logic of uh, the logic of sea power, the logic of commercially driven sea power, predicated on access to regions where you want to trade trade overseas, the need for a naval protector for for the for the merchant fleet, and then obviously production at home, uh, production of uh, not only of shipping but also of things that people overseas would like to sell in order to satisfy their their needs and their wants. So yes, and uh, and Corbett doesn't really need to so so much explain the logic of sea power because Britain is always, as, as Kevin says, Britain's already. It's already the gold standard of sea power. It, it's already done all that stuff, and there and, and therefore and therefore Mahan has a bit of a different agenda. I would just add, and, and I'm going to step onto Kevin's territory here because he's a War of 1812 guy. But the uh, both uh, both Mahan and also Theodore Roosevelt wrote his naval histories of the War of 1812 to basically say. Yes, for the United States needs a big, a big battle fleet, and that's, because, and that's because you cannot improvise a battle fleet F on the eve of war. Go out and defeat the world's uh, supreme sea power, as Americans had talked themselves into believing that we did at the, out, at, at the outset of war in eighteen twelve. Uh, Tr. Tr. Mahan. Mahan's pretty. He's pretty circumspect in his language. Tr. is like he almost is. He's he's almost profane the way he puts it. He he breaks it. He breaks it down to the two, almost to a bullet list, and he says we were pretty good on the lakes we were we were so so on land and we sucked at sea if you go to if you go to boston and tour the uss constitution they will tell you they will tell you that 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 is uh that is boston's only undefeated sports team at uh, something like 33 and 0 i think it is but the fact is that the constitution was was locked up within an, an effective blockade by 1814 War of 1812 is a secondary theater for Great Britain. By, by 1814, things are starting to wind down vis-a-vis Napoleon, and more and more of the Royal Navy can come over and make that blockade effective. So mm-hmm. take, take away from a hand in T.R. is uh, don't let this happen again. Build a fleet to keep, to, to keep hostile fleets away from our shores.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Thank you.
3: Uh, Milan, any, any thoughts on the perspectives? I I want to looking at their personal lives and how much, you know, uh, they differ. You know, one was a career officer and uh, had interest in history and has really enormous problems, you know, in his career just because of being a writer, you know, and trying to do certain things, you know, which was not common. Uh, but he had also some supporters like uh, Stephen Lewis. And I was actually very much impressed with Stephen Lewis, what he's done for our college, you know, and for uh, career of Mahan. The, and what I also get, you know, the Corbett is really, uh, as you know, was novelist, you know, and then civil, civilian writer, you know, a great historian. I think he also highlighted how much you can learn uh, by studying history in that, you know, and come to some uh, sound strategic ideas. And what I think, you know, the, what is different between two of us, we know that one was Jominian, Mahan was influenced by uh, Jominian ideas, and that also reflected in his uh, uh, writings and uh, Corbett was, uh, you know, a uh, Clausewitzian. And mm. I think both of them really complement each other. So I always say that some of them has their weaknesses and, you know, all of them, you know, I think, but they're in, in total, you know, value. Both of them, they kept approach from different perspective and they made a major contribution to understanding of the, of the sea power, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, great, great point. So, okay, so we'll, um, we'll get the conversation
0: going as well with a, with a bit of a softball question, because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, that Mahan and and, and Corbett write about, but what is your, um, what is your, your go-to major concept of either or both of the, of the theorists and, and how it, uh, how it has relevance today? Jim, we'll go ahead and start this one with you.
2: Oh, pick my favorite concept. Well, I, th- I think it's probably I think it's probably active defense uh, for for Corbett, and it, but, I mean, it's, it's 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 valuable not only because it, but because it's in a maritime context, and it's in a, it's in a naval context, but also but also because uh, but also because uh, China. If you read China's military strategy, it's it's only it's only uh, publicly re- released mil- uh, English language military strategies. It, it says active defense is the essence of how we see the world. So it's always interesting to see, to see Corbett develop the idea of active defense. So it's roughly, very roughly the same time that, uh, that Mao Zedong, the founding uh, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party does so. And, and it's basically it's basically an idea about how the weak make themselves strong while weakening that while weakening the strong so that ultimately you can invert an unfavorable balance of power and, and make yourself stronger so that you can do the Clausewitzian or the Mahanian thing, go on the offensive and win a uh, win maritime, win maritime command and thus the right to and thus the right to exploit maritime command, doing all the things that Corbett talks so eloquently about doing, whether it's uh, controlling the sea, denying the sea to your adversary uh conducting amphibious operations bombarding foreign shores whatever whatever the case may be if you own the maritime commons you can do what you can do a whole lot so now it's a i think as you as you put this think about how to put this in a chinese context i think it's important like just like we did a minute ago talking about the difference between the audiences for for mahan and corbett think about think about who mao is writing for he's writing he's writing for a non-state actor that is trying to make itself into a state so it's really really i mean so it's it's actually trying to invent itself Whereas uh, Corbett's idea of active defense is, as Kevin was talking about, but it's a, it's a, it's 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 an idea of active defense for for a power that is stronger on the whole, but needs time. needs time and needs to be inventive to make itself. Uh, uh stronger at the time and place of battle so whether by gathering scattered forces building additional shipping breaking your uh, breaking your uh enemies uh, alliances or whatever the case may be so doing that uh doing that uh time space and force thing that uh, that the joint military operations department is is always teaching us to do
0: <laughs> good deal thank you jim kevin we'll go to you next you're out let me yeah uh...
1: oh Thank you, thank you, John. It does help when I turn on the the, the speaker in in the process. Um, active um, Corbett's active defense is among my favorite concepts. So thank you, Jim. I I, I now can't talk about that one. I want to instead take a, a a little step off to something Jim was referring to just a second ago, and and look more broadly at their theories between Mahan and Corbett and what they talk about in terms of command of the sea. Uh, To me, the idea of command of the sea, which in fact, both of them largely describe in the same terms, I think is an incredibly important point that uh, the two of them build out. How naval warfare is based around the sea lines of communication and based around dominating or controlling those sea lines of communication to be able to move commerce, personnel, uh, naval forces into regions where they need to be worked in. Now, the thing that I particularly like about Corbett's theory and the way that he works in nuances Command of the Sea is how he builds off of Command of the Sea and talks about how Command of the Sea is only a means to an end. It can't be an end itself. It's not the only thing out there. If you dig deep into Mahan's writings, you're going to find the same sort of thing, but you have to dig it to find it in Mahan's writings. In, in Corbett's writings, this whole idea of command of the sea as a means to an end, he builds off of that to talk about using command of the sea or exercising command of the sea to be able to exploit command of the sea and to use this for a naval power like Britain to be able to gain strategic effects at sea by controlling the sea lines of communication. Uh, I think that's extremely important and something that the United States particularly needs to keep in mind in today's competitive international environment on how the United States can, in fact, be able to exercise the command of the sea in situations where they need to to support allies, partners, and our own objectives. Thank you, John.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, Milan, we'll go to you next. Well, I have only a few thoughts. You know, I think we all know, you know, the, uh, the Mahan was influenced by Germany. You know, I think he borrowed a lot of land warfare concepts. You know, I think one is uh, uh, from Germany, You know, the inherent value of the strategic uh, central interior position, the principle of concentration, or strategic concentration, and the close relationship uh, between logistics and combat. The a lot of emphasis on bases. You know, and need to have access to good bases, which I thought was uh, when I look back. You know, one of the major contributions in the development of the U.S. Navy, where we have been always very good. You know from the very beginning, almost, you know, in developing logistics. Uh, I think, you know, he was not as dogmatic as Germany in terms of absolutizing, you know, value of central position and, uh, in, you know, and uh, exterior position. You know, he was more, uh, you know, have a more refined view of that. The one thing I took that I, I think certainly his emphasis on decisive battle, you know, and blockade, I think was less refined than the because Corbett also didn't talk only about control of the sea, he talks also about general local control and permanent and temporary control, which we today widely accepted. The sea control as a term is too broad and is not precise. So when you do any planning, you know, you need to be much more specific whether you want to achieve the control, local control or general control or control the surface, subsurface and so on. So that's what I get. I think the, both of them contributed to our understanding of the, you know, uh, sea control or sea denial. But I would say probably the, the, you know, Corbett has more, more refined view. And I think Corbett was also more in favor of the anything you do in planning, you need to uh, involve, you know, the Navy and Army must plan together. So you cannot uh, have a, just a naval war, you know, I think uh, Mahan was skeptical of the, you know, the, you know, coastal defense. They didn't want to, the Navy is actually involved in defense or defense of the coast because then they become branch of the army. And I think that was a, we know that, uh, negative, I think, uh, consequences, uh, that the, uh, I think even today, I think the U.S. Navy has a, uh, you know, I think not that, uh, a good view, you know, or the need was to support the ground forces and also, you know, what they called other defensive types of warfare, like a mind warfare. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Thanks. Awesome. awesome. Thank you, Milan. So
0: that's actually a, a, an interesting thread that I'd, I'd like to pull on because this this concept of sea control, localized sea control versus command of the sea, um, uh, it seems like that's kind of a point of, of disagreement between the two theorists. And I think it feeds into the larger point of how the two differ on how you win. How does one win if you're a maritime power? And and Kevin, why don't we start this one with you?
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, how do you win if you're a maritime power? I think I think Mahan and Corbett have two different methodologies out there about victory. Uh, on the one hand, Mahan, as Milan Vega has just mentioned, is very very leery of relying on coalition partners and land forces he's trying to figure out how the navy can be decisive in its own right and to him this comes back to sea power this nexus of commercial and naval power working together in a synergistic sort of way to build up your own country and if you deny the sea power to your opponents deny their naval power, destroy their naval power, or deny their commercial power, that you can slowly wear them down in a grinding economic type of assault. He sees this as what Britain did to the United States in the War of 1812, what Britain did to Napoleon on a grander scale in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so that's, that's Mahan's um, theory of victory, we could sort of say in that point. Corbett tries to accelerate that. He realizes that the longer war protracts, the more chances there are unintended consequences. He doesn't quite use those terms, but that's the type of thing that he's getting at. And he's trying to figure out how you can get more decisive results by using a package of powers. And this goes back to what Milan just mentioned a second ago on Corbett is very interested in that interrelationship of land and naval power and how that those sorts of things can work out. Whereas particularly because Corbett realizes that most wars are decided on land. Um, they're fought over pieces of territory who rule states, things like that. Most wars are not fought over purely maritime type of objectives. And you've somehow got to cross domains in this point and start in uh if you're a naval power, how can you leverage your use of sea and eventually hopefully local or general command of the sea to get some sort of political effects that are largely transition on land into Corbett. This requires what we would today call a joint approach. Uh, thanks, John.
0: Awesome. Jim, we'll go to you next.
2: Yeah, I think that those guys more or less uh, stole my thunder. I would just add a couple of things around the margins. Uh, first of all, I mean, just to sort of double tap on uh, on Corbett's idea. Of, I mean, he's the prophet of jointness. It's all about winning on land because that's where people live, and I, I think that's I think that's again, an extremely valuable insight because we we even more than in the days of corporate mahan live in an age of joint sea power when there's a whole when there's a whole lot of uh, system, weapon systems and sensors and whatnot that can reach from one domain into the other and then actually sh- and, and actually shape affairs there i think that's what access and area denial is all about so is so but the, the the ultimate show does have to be on land I just uh, let me let me just go off t- off uh, off t- on a tangent just briefly. Uh, just yesterday, I talked I talked to to uh, the USS or the U.S. Space Force for the very first time, and that's and that's that's a debate that they're having in, when they're thinking about the about the orbital and the and what they call the cislunar space, the space between the Earth and the and the and the Moon. Do you look up and try to and try to shape events in between the Earth and the Moon, or do you look down in Corbettian fashion and try to shape a, events on on the surface of the Earth as uh, as uh, joint military operations go along? Uh, one of the one one thing that's when you when my when my two colleagues were talking about uh, about how the the value of um, of uh, different types of control the sea, one of my favorite passages from Corbett is, is 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 that one when he says look yes yes it, it makes sense to do things in sequence when the degree of control that you need then exercise the degree of, that that degree of control in order to shape events on land but he also he also says that makes it that makes logical sense but war does not always proceed by logic and sometimes reality being what it is you are going to start exercising command while you are still fighting for it mm-hmm. and that's a that's a, that that to me has always been a pretty profound i, I, I always I also just like it's because it's totally counterintuitive but I, but i think it makes perfect sense when you look at when you because uh, theory doesn't always map uh, directly onto onto military history which as cosmos tells us uh, tends to tends to branch off in all different directions for various reasons and uh, la- and lastly, I guess when you talk about how you win on land, Cor- Corbett pays a lot of attention. To, he pays a lot of attention to uh, to, the, to the Iberian campaign and the Napoleonic Wars, which we t- which, he, which he claims that Clausewitz laid the groundwork for in his own in his own books, but uh, but uh, but also he didn't really fully fathom it. This is the idea of a war by contingent, having having, having a, having a small ish uh, ground force that can work with lo- local partisans, on, on the ground supported from the sea by the royal navy or whoever the navy might be and, th- and thus through a limited war in a, in a peripheral theater make things tough on an adversary in a, in an unlimited war so the adversary if the adversary is a napoleon and he's fighting mostly to the to uh, france's east do things to his west to, make, to take, make things really tough on him he can't abandon that theater and therefore you can take advantage of that to to, to block down large numbers of, of, of french troops Uh, And and thus, and thus siphon them off so they're not, so they're not available for. Concentration at the major theater. So, so a few little things. By the way, and by the way, the, the, just for our students, I would I would just add that when in this in this Corbettian mode, there are other theaters out here out there that talk about the interdependence of land and sea. One of my favorite is C. E. Callwell, who was a, who was who was Corbett's uh, who was Corbett's contemporary and wrote a wrote a wonderful book uh, about about maritime about maritime dominance and and, and the inter- interdependence with with the Army. So, there are other people out there as well who also are, are pretty eloquent. I think that I think his book is still in print through the Naval Institute Press, but but I'm sure it must be available online through Internet Archive or something like that. So it was certainly it certainly was in press not not too long ago. But uh, so that one's worth checking out too. Okay, Kevin, you had a response to what Jim said. No, I think
1: I just want to I just want to uh two things uh, that that Jim mentioned. Number one. Corbett is not alone at the time that he wrote about joint warfare. Caldwell is talking about it. Cologne talks about it in his writings. Aston is another writer that is contemporary, that he's actually another Royal uh, Royal Marine that is looking at it. In fact, we make Corbett sound out to be this possible of amphibious warfare from the turn of the 20th century Britain, when in fact, the ideas are fairly diffuse in the literature. The thing about it is Corbett explains it in a lot better, more effectively than his competitors. And everybody has kind of put him up on the pedestal for it in hindsight. But but there are a number of other ones that present largely the same sort of argument and the same sort of thing for Britain. Um, but this war by contingent, which Jim talks about is so important, but there's one one vast problem with corbett's idea of war limited by contingent is you have to find a theater that is geographically exposed where you can operate in this to get these disproportionate strategic effects napoleon got himself bogged down in iberia in the napoleonic wars surrounded on four or five sides by water the uh, spain and portugal is a perfect conditions but but Britain runs into a problem in the First World War. They cannot find a theater that gives them the same type of strategic effects against Germany in that war. So you've got, so this is this is a tough one. Uh, Corbett's got a great idea, but sometimes the geography doesn't give you the opening to make sure you can exploit it.
2: Mm. Okay, yeah, not every not every big idea is actionable. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, Milan,
0: any, any
3: thoughts on? Well, actually, I have just, uh, I'm listening to Jim, you know, I appreciate the talks and Kevin and Jim, you know, that I, I would just want to add that in terms of the, when you, you know, when you compare Mahan and Corbett, Mahan tends to be more rigid in his claims that uh, the, the precondition for any, you know, decisive victory was, strategic concentration of the fleet. Uh, I think uh, that the, Corbett has much more refined view. He talked about strategic combinations, you know, and I think needs also to have, and I think that's much more realistic view that you don't need, uh, you know, just, you need also dispersal, okay? So I think it, it make combinations, you know. I think without big combinations, you can really be successful. And I would just add also on term, in terms of defense and offense, I think, you know, he had certainly good uh, Corbett good ideas that, uh, that warfare always include elements of defense. Uh, he mentioned, you know, the defense of the shipping. But I would say in our interpretation today, d- defense of shipping is never never completely defensive. You also have to uh, co- conduct offensive actions in defense of shipping too, you know. Mm. And I think, you know, when you look you know, in terms of the sea control, sea denial, I think there is a, a, a maybe under influence of Nahan, uh, m- too much emphasis on offensive, you know, it's on sea control, and was not, I think, there is not a, uh, uh, somehow understanding that you can be strategically on defensive and you, can, you should be always tactically operationally on offensive. And we did this, for example, after the, uh, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor in the December 1941 and until August 1942 when we landed in Guadalcanal, our fast carrier forces, you know, attacked the Japanese strength points in Central Pacific, Southern Pacific, and our submarines were involved in shipping. So that was one example of the being operationally and tactically on offensive, while strategically on defensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, sea control, certainly, you cannot obtain sea control without being on offensive. And I think no matter whether it's offensive or defensive, Navy must be offensively minded as it was Royal Navy, I would say US Navy, Japanese Navy, but I think we also need the balance. For example, today we have, a, I think, how many times you uh, read you know, about area denial and, and uh, anti-axis in terms of possible war you know, in the Western Pacific. And that idea is that we will be somehow on offensive and uh, the other side will be on defensive. And I will argue maybe both sides will go on offensive. And then after a certain time, one side or other will uh you know because of losses must be forced to go strategically on defensive
0: Mm. yeah no great great point um so i
2: i I think oh jim i'm sorry go ahead you wanted to well, actually, actually, the conversation sort of moved on. I was just going to uh, amplify something Milan said about uh, about strategic concentration of, of the fleet for Mahan. It used it, it, there was a, there was a time when it was commonplace for you to hear from you really distinguished maritime historians that Mahan said never divide the fleet. And yeah, that's a, I mean that's a, that's in fact I got so annoyed at it some years ago I actually went out and started looking at every quotation that, like that that I could find and you know in books like Makers of Modern Strategy and so forth and you know what not a single not a single one of those authors actually quoted Mahan saying that they were all quoting each other in their in their end notes and footnotes because he just it's simply a valorization of what he's what he said. What he was, what he's basically saying is, do not do not divide the U.S. Navy between in, into Atlantic and Pacific fleets until until such time until such time as it's strong enough for you to have a stronger force than any likely uh, adversary in both of those oceans. He was very much worried that we were going to do what Russia had done what Russia had done before the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905 and divide and fragment the uh, fragment the Russian Navy into 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 uh, in, into sections that simply could not re- reinforce each other mutually. So that's a Okay, kind of that was good that was kind of a fun little research project but uh, but yeah never divide the fleet well you get, that takes a big asterisk if you're going to use that quotation from a hand because he didn't yeah. say it but <laughs> well, i'm actually glad you so
0: everybody mentioned in terms of common misconceptions because i think that's probably a good thread to pull um let's talk about some other misconceptions that people usually attribute to oh mahan said this or corbett said that that really are not are not true and here's our chance to correct the record here um, so, uh, Kevin, why don't we start this one with you? Any any other ones that you think are uh, topical? Well, one that struck
1: me uh, in the last book I wrote, which is all, actually on Mahan and Corbett, I went in to the chapter I was going to write on offense and defense with a preconceived notion from what I had read and what I had heard about offense and defense. And Corbett played out almost to a T what people had told me the active defense, the use of counterattacks, the types of things that Jim talked about now 30 minutes ago in this conversation, um, that played out. It's what really struck me is when I got to Mahan. And, uh, and when I got to Mahan, there are several things that, well, first off, I realized that if you're looking at Mahan, whether you're at the tactical, the operational, or the strategic level, the way he looks at offense and defense changes dramatically. Um, at the strategic level, uh, the policy level, strategic level, at the very top, Mahan is a true believer in wars are fought for political objectives. So you can fight a defensive war, an offensive war, or thereabouts, it depends on the political objective in that point. What? Milan said about the tactical level is Mahan was a firm believer, the tactical level, offense, 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 because there's no real place to hide at sea. There's no terrain to dig behind, no foxholes to be in, nothing like that. But at the operational level, this is what just boggled my mind. I kept hearing that Mahan was all about the offense. But when you peel back the layers, Mahan is guilty of very, very poor writing in this case. Uh, and you're laughing right now. And I'm sure several people on this podcast, when they listen to it, are going to be writing who have read Mahan and said, of course, his he uh, he his writing is about the most convoluted it can possibly be at times. But the problem is when Mahan writes about offense and defense, particularly at uh, this kind of operational fleet level, um, he's... Uh, he's not being specific enough. When he means defense, when he writes defense is wrongheaded and some other things like that, it's always passive defense for him. It is never an active defense. When he starts writing about active defense, he is not precise either. Sometimes he calls it offense defense. Almost never does he call it active defense. And half the time he just calls it offense and expects the reader to actually parse out the situation that it's really an active defensive sort of thing. Um, So Mahan is actually less truly offensively minded than a lot of people give him credit for. Uh, And in fact, he writes a lot about the same active defense sort of things that Corbett does. The problem is it's it's terrible writing that leaves it very very difficult to actually have to read the onion leaves and and, and so forth in the in, in the process but that's one of the big misconceptions i see in it
0: okay awesome thank you jim why
2: don't we go to you next uh, let me unmute here yeah it's a, i mean i, I couldn't I couldn't agree more I, in fact I, in fact uh, my hand uh, for for all that he's known as not a great writer, he gives he gives he gives me one of my favorite definitions of uh, of grand strategy. He, he he reduces it to three words: statesmanship directing arms. Which I think is just—I just think that's a really great starting point for for thinking for thinking about it uh, about how to integrate military force into an overall grand strategy. I, I think I, I couldn't I couldn't disagree with anything Kevin said, but I just thought I might add a couple of little things on to what he said. It's a, it's a, it's a, he didn't have a lot he didn't have a great sense of humor, but but there are, but there are a couple of passages in his memoir from very late in life, either 1907 I think it was, uh, from Sale to steam. But it, he at one point and at one point and that and by the way all of his works are available on uh, in full text online these days. you can find any of them that you want. But he, at one point he's talking about why I wrote as I did. And he said and I, I'm not going to be able to direct him uh, to, to quote him directly, but he basically says I would I, I was I was morbidly scared of being caught by my colleagues in a mistake. and therefore I put every qualifier, every comma, every every adverb, every adjective I could between two periods. And thus, something, and he says something like, "I over, I overtax the the resources or the or the reader's attention and so forth." So he was a he was a he 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 was uh, clearly he was uh, sensitive to to the criticism, and he actually admitted that uh, to a great degree it was actually true. And I I think for those of us who write in academic circles, I think we I think we intuitively get that just because we're always uh, sniping at one another. And just to I, I would also on this question of offense versus defense. And the example of Corbett shows us how unpolitically correct it was to talk about defense. I mean, Corbett, Corbett the Royal Navy old guard gave him, they gave him no, no, uh, they basically no rest on these questions of active defense. I think there was probably a political dimension to Mahan's, uh, Mahan's uh, all the, all offense, all, all, all the time verbiage, which is one reason that he was uh, wildly, wildly popular in places like Great Britain and Japan and so forth. Dying with it, dying with, good Queen, with uh, Queen Victoria got, uh, got honorary degrees at Oxford and Cambridge and all those sorts of things that he had on a European cruise. So, so it's, so it's not a, so there's a theoretical dimension but there's also personal and political dimensions that go into why re, why writers say what they write I've talked to and Kevin might want to expand on this a little bit but Kevin and I have talked about it just a little bit over the years about the, the difference in tone between the green book and in the back of Corbett's uh, some principles of maritime strategy and the tone of the of the of the main book which is a spinoff of that the, the, the green book the green book seems a lot more blunt than than the than the, than the uh then, then the main, main body of that book and I think part of that might have been uh, a result of the criticism that uh, Corbett encountered even though he always spoke his mind but, but not all of us is politically sensitive to, to a degree. Uh-huh. Uh, Kevin did you want to reply to that? Uh the green uh the green
1: pamphlet which uh, is about a 1520 actually in its original form it's I think 12 pages long but uh it's a short overview of what actually becomes some principles of maritime strategy but it's very very different it's written in an outline sort of form and it was never meant for the general public it was meant as essentially cliff notes to british naval officers at their equivalent of their naval war college and it was supposed to provide definitions of things like command of the sea and it was supposed to f- provide some sort of background um Its tone is very, very different than some principles of maritime strategy, largely because it is that outline uh, format. It's also heavily edited by naval officers at the time. Corbett is the author of it, but um, Captain Slade, who was Edmund Slade, who was the, uh, the equivalent of their president of their war college at one time, was a major contributor to it. And then Bailey, another contributor did another addition to it uh so corbett is not the lone hand in this one but uh he does corbett does receive quite a bit of flack for this document and its terseness and and it's very very blunt pronouncements and i think that does play to what jim is, is definitely talk, mm-hmm. talking about
0: okay thank you uh milan any thoughts on the
3: i, I would just uh, go back you know do the question of concentration versus dispersal, you know, in Mahan writings and uh and uh, Corbett and uh Mahan has repeated a number of times what I saw, you know, that uh, concentration they said that it was, for him was the most important principle in naval warfare. And actually in like his view with the concentrated fire, the battle fleet is the principal means by which naval power is to be asserted. Then he also talked about fleet concentration sums up in itself all other factors, the entire alpha or military efficiency in war and it's applicable at a strategic and tactical level. And when you look, you know, uh, the, the Corbett, in my view, he has much more realistic view. And he said, you know, that in a, in a war, you know, you cannot be successful unless one takes high, but prudent risks and the greatest and the most effective of such risk is a division or dispersal of one fleet. And he was, uh, you know, saying that the war see, cannot be won you know, without what he calls strategical combinations, which uh, as a rule entails, you know, at least apparent dispersal. So I would say that he has much more, uh, you know, refined view of that thing. There might be, you know, in terms of other that he implied Mahan, but I think the, the Corbett was much more explicit, you know, and I think, you know, this is one thing which we thought that's a much better principle than going to one extreme or another, you know? okay? Awesome. Interesting
2: uh uh jim go ahead yeah i was just, uh, just going to add on to what milan was just talking about i don't i don't get a any a i don't know if anybody agrees with me on this i never get much operational or tactical value out of my hand i think he's great up at the level of the logic of sea power and on down basically yeah. to the level of talking about maritime command but one one of my favorite passages that i think does relate to that level is it is about how to, how to size a fleet or a fleet or a fleet detachment yeah the hit, in one of in one of his later in one of his later essays he, he basically says look you see you say you size a fleet thus you basically you you, you size it so that it is great that it is great enough to take to the sea and fight against the largest foe that it is likely to meet at the right time at the time and place of battle which and it it sounds like a really really simple thing it's almost it's almost like a buy low sell high type thing but if you actually parse parse the language that he's talking about there's a lot in there when he talks about great enough we were talking about the human human and material components of fleets you know the components of strength number of ships armament sensors all that all that kind of stuff so there's the net assessment aspect and that and that's obviously very important when you're thinking about uh, concentration and dispersal but when he talks about the 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 the, the Enemy fleet that you are likely to meet in a particular time and place. That's that's really that's really powerful because how do you how do you how do you gauge what the what the what the biggest fleet you are likely to meet at a particular time and place is? Well, I mean, if you look at it through the eyes of the eyes of uh, people in the in the United States in the early 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt or Mahan himself, they're mostly worried about what's going on in the in the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Gulf of Mexico, where the where the sea lanes going to the Panama Canal will run. So it's it, but so if you think about who the most likely adversaries are, it could be Great Britain, which is still a factor in, in those in those waters. It could be Imperial Germany, which is setting out to, to build a great navy, or whatever the case may be. But would but would London actually send the entire Royal Navy into into the Caribbean and the Gulf for any any conceivable purpose, and thus ev- essentially evacuate ships from all over the world from policing the British Empire? And but for my hand, the answer is no. So you have to figure out how much, how much, uh, how much uh, the British leadership wanted its goals in, in those waters, and thus, what what, what a fraction of the force it was likely to send, and that became the metric for the United States Navy. If the United, States, if the U.S. wanted to dominate the Western Hemisphere, but especially the, especially those southern waters that were of such a vital importance, and it's it it almost felt like there, were, it almost feels like a recurring theme. It's almost a bit of numerology in U.S. U.S. history, re- reaching all the way back to Alexander and the Federalist Papers. The number seems to seem to be twenty capital ships. If you have twenty capital ships standing in in your own home waters, standing astride those uh, those sea lanes, then that's probably that's probably enough because that seems to be the measure of uh, of uh, of uh, of, uh, of uh, London's determination to come into our backyard and do things. And yes, and it's the, the same number from my hand twenty. We need twenty battleships, and then, and that, that's enough to get it done. Even the, even though that's not even close to what the Royal Navy has, and to what Germany is setting out to build. So, oh, and by the way fun fact the, the 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 great white fleet when it set forth forth from hampton roads in uh, in 1907 was indeed 20 battleships 16 went on the voyage forward four were in refit but the, but that was the size of the fleet so that's uh that's one of that's one of those neat things as, a, as an author to, to actually see your ideas translated to, straight into steel but it but it, but it seemed to have worked out for him huh so that
0: kind of um brings up uh, i think a good question in the sense of we're, we're talking about Uh, Mahan and Corbett saying concentration, but they also write about the concept of a fleet and being and how one uses that. So why don't we kind of pull that thread? It's a good segue. First of all, what is a a fleet and being according to them? And then how does one use the the fleet and being Um, let's go to you on this one, Kevin.
1: Oh, wow. A fleet and being this is, this is one of these terms that is another to me, one of these common misconceptions, because I think, a lot of people uh, just quickly think a fleet in being is a fleet that is sequestered in a port at anchor and is in a state of being in a state of unrest um both Mahan and Corbett did not think a fleet in being was a fleet that was at anchor in a port unless in extremist circumstances um and even then they don't really want to go there instead both of them look at historical case studies and and their view, particularly Mahan's views on this evolve, Corbett's don't so much. He kind of comes with an idea and he sits with it, But, um, but their idea is a fleet in being is a weaker fleet, although it is a fleet not so weak that it's negligible. It is like a fleet like the one that Jim has just described here, that is large enough to be a factor in a war but not large enough to engage an enemy's concentrated fleet. And the idea is to keep it at sea, to keep it in an active state of being, to move quickly from point to point, keep your opponent off balance. And uh, and as long as a fleet is in being, command of the sea for your stronger opponent is impossible. So it's denying command of the sea with a weaker fleet. It prevents local or general command of the sea, depending on the circumstances that are involved. Uh, and uh, it's designed when you are weaker. Now Mahan provides a really big qualification to it. In fact, he provides several over the years. But one is that it's really only a temporary expedient. Eventually, that weaker fleet is going to get run to the ground and is going to get destroyed potentially. But if you need if you need to accept temporary inferiority because of another operation or you have uh ships in in repair or down with damage this is a thing that can work in the short term to be able to deny your opponent command of the sea and to to keep um and to keep operations active and uh, in existence um he's got some other things i'm gonna let jim and others talk about like fortress fleet and stuff like that but Uh, but that's, that's some of the, uh, that's some of the points.
0: Okay. Uh, Jim, we'll go to you next.
2: Oh yeah, just just to add that, I mean, Corbett's very strident about this. I almost sounds sound strident. I mean, it's a, it's a, he takes he takes goes back to the term and he says fleet in being. That means a fleet that is actively in being and always and always on the lookout for an opportunity for a counterstroke. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's sort of the, I mean, that's the, that's the basic that's the basics of what a fleet in being is. It's trying to do active defense things. That's when you start off weaker and you try to weaken your fo- your adversary, while making yourself strong. So that's a and he 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 gives the example. He gives the example. Corbett Corbett does of, of the of in the in the late seventeenth or is the late yeah the late seventeenth century. I'm sorry, the, the French are trying to inter, to intervene in Ireland, and the the Royal Navy's fleet is temporarily in the Channel is temporarily uh, weaker than the French fleet, and but uh, but the but the but, but the commander Lord Torrington he actually realizes that he that he if they want to do amphibious things. He he doesn't have to be stronger in order to block their aims at sea. If he, if he takes his fleet and he lurks near nearby, and if the French are stupid enough to go in there and anchor and and, and try to land troops in Ireland, well, I mean, you know, more power to them because he'll he'll just stand in there and uh, and do what uh, what Nelson did, later did at the Nile. i tell you, take under fire ships that are at anchor and can't and can't really do a whole lot back. So then, for for this for this it almost becomes a metaphor for for Corbett where you where you where you essentially defeat your adversary's strategy even with a weaker force by time and then ultimately and then ultimately if if you if you need to and if you can you can ultimately go on the offensive now Corbett also but but there's actually a coda to this one Corbett actually and then it relates to the, directly to the phrase fleet and being word gets back to to London. To, to, to the to the Crown in London thats uh, that he is undertaking a fleet and being strategy and they say, oh, he's just camping out. He's not doing anything to try to defeat the the British the British. They say they, they direct him to go in and do the Mahanian thing and have a battle. and guess what the British the, the British uh, fleet gets creamed at uh, Beachy Head. And for for Corbett, this is a really really a cautionary tale. It's 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 really the, the linguistic dimension actually actually has a serious tactical and operational effects for the for the British. It almost seems it almost sounds like a Monty Python a skit or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the way the way that Corbett uh, describes it, but uh, but I think there's a reason he did that it's because that's that's it's an anecdote that really sticks in your mind. Okay, thank you,
0: uh, Milan. Any thoughts on Fleet and Beach?
3: Well, I don't have really. I agree with Jimmy. No, I would just only say that uh, in. Uh, in terms of the Mahanian view with Mahan, I think he was more, to some extent, more skeptical about the value of the freedom being. He said that uh, its value was, uh, you know, uh, exaggerated. They said it tends, for instance, to discard fortifications or to undervalue the advantages of national defense. And, but he also uh, clearly uh, distinguished between what he called fortress fleet or passive freedom being and active freedom being. And then Corbett, as uh, Jim already explained, he was more in favor of the what they call active freedom being. I think that that's now also, I think, connected to what I discussed earlier about that you can be, or you should be uh, tactically operationally on offensive while you are strategically on defensive. Mm. Mm.
0: Okay, awesome. Uh, Kevin, you had a response.
1: Yes, uh, I wanna go back to something about, uh, particularly something Jim said about when Torrington sent the message to the British political leadership in London saying he was going to use a fleet and being, they completely un- misunderstood what a fleet and being actually was, and they ordered him to see. But there's a corollary to that discussion. Fleet and being returns into the, uh, to the modern naval parlance in 1890 or so when Cologne publishes his book Naval Warfare which has a description of fleet and being in it. From there until World War One, a number of British and American authors, Corbett and Mahan included, look at the fleet and being, and there is this recurring theme that happens time and time again that plays into this Monty Python type of script that Jim has said. People seem to misunderstand what fleet and being is because of the word being in it people can't figure out what it actually is. Corbett explains it best, but he never escapes the terminology of fleet in being, and people seem to question it. And this, I think, is a cautionary tale for us today as people who talk about strategy and who look at maritime or military affairs. We need to be very careful with the words we choose to describe some things and and if they lead people onto tangents and preconceived notions with some of the our concepts that are very different from what we intend them to be, then we fight an uphill battle to try and educate people to understand our terminology when we need to uh, educate people to actually understand the concept behind the terminology like Corbett was trying to do. So I think it's a, it's a really, really interesting story in the end.
0: Okay. Jim, you had a response.
2: Yeah, just uh, Kevin. Uh, Kevin gave me a hook in his previous remarks, not this one, but the one before about the about the fortress fleet. I, um, one of my favorite things I ever ended up writing was for a very obscure journal, a journal down at an uh, International Relations School of, down at Seton Hall. It was probably around the 2010 time frame, but they asked me to say something about technology and maritime strategy, and that was the sum total of the of the guidance. So I sat down and I started writing, and it, but it turned into a, it turned into it turned into a piece about China's fortress fleet about, I mean, for, for Mahan in the days of Mahan, or the days, or in the days of uh, the Russo-Japanese War, which was what Mahan uh, coined that phrase to talk about, it was it was pretty it was pretty it was it was extremely restrictive in order to operate the fleet under the gu- under the guns of uh, coastal artillery, the guns of port Arthur, Arthur in that case, because the range of accurate gunnery was pathetic back in those days. I, I, I've never found an maybe Milan knows, but I've never actually found an accurate figure for what the range of a shore gun is, but it must be a lot shorter than ten nautical miles. And if you if you swing that if you swing that range arc on the map around the gun position, that's a very small sea area. I mean, that's just not a blue, you just don't have a blue water navy, which is one which is one reason Mahan was actually He was actually absolutely correct back in those days. But I think his idea about the Fortress Fleet is perishable. Now in the, in the range of long-range precision-guided armaments that can strike scores or hundreds, or perhaps perhaps if you listen to the Pentagon, even, even thousands of miles offshore. If you apply that logic and swing those range rings around the Chinese periphery, around whoever's uh, trying a fortress fleet strategy, you've opened up a lot of sea area under which the fleet can cruise while also enjoying the the benefits of shore-based fire support. So that's that. That can be a great equalizer, even for a lesser fleet, at, so, such as we hope the PLA Navy's a uh, surface surface fleet still is. So not only does it, not only do I does I think uh, or do I think that uh, Mahan's critique of the fortress fleet has lost cogency. I actually think it's a, I think it's an obvious choice for a power for a power such as China, potentially Russia, which traded back in Soviet days as well. So that's uh, so yeah. If you if you have you have if you have that kind of land based reach out to sea, you, you can really you can really accomplish a lot, even if your navy remains inferior.
0: Um so that's um it it, it kind of sparks a, a thought we're talking a lot about offense defense and a, and active defense um one concept that's somewhat not I won't call it tangential to that but um they're they're talk about um commerce rating and uh and Kevin you'll correct me on the pronunciation of this but the Shinnacol School of a commerce rating, (laughs) Um, and this is this is somewhat of a uh, an offensive type type um, concept that uh, that both speak of. So, Kevin, why don't we why don't we go to you on this one for uh, when to use this?
1: So you want me to talk about the Junicol or Mahan and Corbett and their thoughts on the Junicol or or what what do you mean?
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> any of the above? Um, he, may, he may be Garrett, of course, actually. I think if you're talking about commerce rating, that's Garrett, of course. The oh, course. I'm sorry. Garrett, of course.
0: Uh, yes. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Jim. Yeah. Commerce. Commerce rating is the concept I wanted to talk so, about.
2: OK, commerce
1: rating. Um, Jim, why don't you go ahead and take the lead on it?
2: Oh, okay. Well, I would. I'll let. I'll, I'll let you have most of the glory, such as it is. But I would. I would just point out that we're. All, and maybe this is falls into the into the realm of uh, misconceptions about Mahan. Yes, Mahan. Yes, Mahan. He was not a, a huge fan of it. But at the same time, he. At the same time, the criticism that Mahan. Levels against uh, commerce rating against, Garrett, of course, is in the footnote on the very last page of his book, uh, "The Influence of Sea Power upon History, 1660 to 1783." So, I, I so so I think I, I think we I think we make a mistake if we inflate that into some in some in, into some sort of huge antagonism towards uh, t- towards uh, commerce rating. He does point out that it is a most important secondary operation. The point he basically basically make it, making is that it's not a war winning operation. And oh, by the way, his, uh, his his descendant, one of our predecessors at the War College, Admiral Wiley, agrees with that. He 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 classif- he classifies uh, naval warfare such as commerce raiding, such as uh, all you know things that we do about sea in a more distributed fashion. He he, he classified those as cumulative operations, and he says that they are not decisive in warfare. They are they're an, an extremely valuable adjunct to what you do more sequentially to try to win wars. So. I think it's, he he actually does. I don't think Wiley actually m- mentions uh, Mahan in that uh, context, but he but he seems to fall into the same school of thought. And I uh, I, I agree with him. i it's it's you know, I think that's possibly one of those things that we, as in early America. Once again, we talked ourselves into believing this is how you how you thrash the biggest navy of the day. You, you issue letters of mark and reprisal. You you, you fashion a, a raiding craft of all types, and you, and you take it to the adversary. Well, yeah, you could put the hurt on it, but at the same time, you're probably not going to compel uh, London to do your bidding, which is what it's all about, just by doing that kind of stuff at sea.
0: Uh, Kevin.
1: Uh, great points, Jim. Um, I want to take this to your mistake, John, from a minute ago, and it mentioned to June, uh, <laughs> yeah, the 18- you, Nicole. No, but in, <laughs> 18- in the 1880s, uh, the Junicol School emerged in France with the attempt to find out a strategy, determine a strategy that could make a commerce rating strategy decisive. In other words, a strategy that could beat Britain as the dominant naval power using primarily a commerce rating strategy. Their idea was to be absolutely merciless, sink merchant ships, uh, cause insurance rates to go up, Creates so much fear that nobody would be be either able financially to go to sea or go to sea because of um, uh, of their fear of dying, and it would cause Britain with its worldwide commercial empire to basically implode. That's that's their theory of victory behind it. If this works, the idea of the great battle fleets that Mahan writes about become obsolete. Uh, they just, you know, you can't use a great battle fleet to stop this Junicol strategy. And uh, one of Mahan's big arguments in the influence of sea power upon history, and in fact, it's Corbett's arguments also, particularly in his earlier works, is to try and downplay people who think there is a cheap substitute to building a real balanced fleet that is capable of multiple missions and, and so forth. You can't just have a commerce rating fleet that can yield any type of decisive results. Maybe they can be secondary supporting operation as Mahan indicates. Corbett basically argues the same thing in some principles of maritime strategy, but um, there, there's this real tension between those who believe that there's a balanced fleet that can, obtain command of the sea, exercise command of the sea, and be used as a true naval power. And those who want to base their strategy on sea denial, which is the commerce rating strategy. And in fact, it becomes a real question in both world wars with Germany trying or eventually moving toward the sea denial strategy and Britain in the United States working with a more traditional Corbetti and Mahanian type of strategy behind it. So, you know, the the real key with commerce rating is what can it do.
3: Awesome, thank you, uh, Milan. Any thoughts on uh, on commerce? Uh, you know, that we, we use the term commerce rating. You know, in today's terms, really, the better term is made trade warfare. You know, but that's a. a throughout the history, you know, those uh, those way or how the weaker side at sea can indirectly attack the naval, uh, you know, uh, strength of the enemy by weakening the economy. And that, you know, these things always fail because there was no, uh, really, no, no combination with the uh, use of organized naval forces, you know, in other words, to defeat the enemy, enemy striking free or striking force, you know. Uh, to, uh, the young school, I think, the, one of the major reasons for emergence of the school was also poor economy you know in the aftermath of the war with the with the Prussia 1870, 1871 and then was also obsession with the uh, so-called new platform torpedo boats you know gunboats you know the similar stations, mines and so on all netting and so on uh, they, and also the, the came to the idea that naval battles are not decisive that is uh, they're mindless you know that they don't serve any purpose. You know, and that was the justification to stop building, you know, big ships, you know, and focusing on the, on the, uh, what we call in you know, modern terms, you know, light forces, you know. And for 30 years, the the, the Navy, the Naval, I mean, French Naval Corps was uh, divided, you know, and uh, did a really enormous damage to the French Navy uh, before 1900. When after that, you know, it was abandoned, you know. But I think that's a, the young school is also you know, an example of embracing uh, new theories of warfare is c- exclusively based on technology and not on the history lessons. You, know, you need they always, the, the good theory is always based on lessons of history and uh, some also technological advances, you know, which we look, you know, for the character of the future war. Okay, so that was one, and that is the one warning that we have repeated here: that error when we have engaged hey, with transformation, focus on net percentage warfare and on FX-based operations, all based on the technologies, you know. Okay, hmm. that,
0: that's a that's a great point about, um, and, and it's a good segue too, as we as we move to the um, uh, pushing on an hour here, of a, a last question of the contemporary. Relevance of these theories and 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 how they um, uh, how they play out today, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the the, the technology point, Milan. Um, and I I can't remember if it was in Jim or Kevin's lecture uh, where we talked about um, you know we haven't mentioned the six six requirements for sea power that uh, that Mahan um, uh, put forth, but I I, I want to say it was you, Jim, that that talked about how if you overlay the six requirements on on what China has and doesn't have it's very it's very interesting window in terms of how this uh, how this plays out today. So anyway, for our last question, the contemporary relevance Your you know, you, what what is your um, uh, favorite uh, contemporary point that you think from either Mahan or Corbett or both that that comes into effect today that we see. Uh, Jim, why don't we start this one with you.
2: Okay. Well, I I jotted down three. So I have, I have one input, but it has three parts. The, uh, uh, us being academics, that's how we do things. I I mean, just very, very quickly, uh, well, one thing one of the projects I've enjoyed most in recent years was something I did with major General bill Bowers who when he was out at the third Marine expeditionary force we wrote a piece for the for the Marine Corps Gazette that appeared back in well it appeared back in in uh, in December of 2021 and they ran it uh, just this past December again but it was basically trying, trying to it was, it was called the seventh cornerstone of naval operations and we wrote it in tribute to the, to the great uh, late late uh, captain Wayne Hughes who of course uh, posited uh, posited six Cornerstones in his in his famous uh, fleet tactics but the seventh cornerstone is the home team has the advantage and you can you can you can dig into these theories and I, I mean I mean the, just look at the map of East Asia yes we make a big deal out of China having the home team advantage vis-a-vis ourselves But 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 also look at look at Japan look at Japan on the map uh performing that northward ar- arc of the of the first island chain and think and think about all the concepts we've been talking about particularly with the fortress fleets concept with the jeunicol i would i would argue that today we are seeing a, a renaissance of the jeunicol uh in the form of pla navy uh, uh conventional submarines all armed with anti-ship missiles say the same thing with the uh, type 22 uh, hobey catamarans all, all packed all packed with the uh, eight Anti-ship missiles, apiece. I mean, these are these are the these are the descendants of that super empowered flotilla that uh, Corbett saw, saw taking shape in his lifetime. It's a flotilla that can now do do grave harm to the to the battle fleet. So, I, I think this family of concepts. I think it uh, it really helps. So, uh, it really helps put put uh, sort of hang meat on the bones of the idea of the home team advantage. So we tried, we tried to figure out who had the home team advantage and how we, how we and our allies, Japan, uh, Taiwan, potentially the Philippines, and so forth can uh, try to, can try to put, uh, can try to put substance into our home team advantage so that we deter China or if, heaven forbid, we get in the scrap, with China can defeat it. Just want to just for, and this, this goes back to what Milan was talking about. I think I think President Theodore Roosevelt, I think, gave the best description I've ever seen of the relationship between shore based and sea based defense, as well as the battle fleet. Back in 1907, in a message to Congress, he basically said, look. Your coasts have to defend defend themselves, and how do they do that? Well, they do it with uh, minefields, with coastal artillery, with with destroyers, subs, all those things that are becoming a thing in the early twentieth century. So, very much, uh, very much, uh, these are related to the to the to the uh, fortress fleet concept, and also and also to the Jeanne And he says, if you do that effectively, if you can hold off a, a superior power uh, at sea u- using shore based defenses, at that point the battle fleet becomes what he calls foot loose. It can roam the seven seas and do whatever the the leadership in Washington tells it to, whether it's amphibious stuff, whether it's defeating the adversary's Navy or whatever the case may be. So I see a ton of a ton of contemporary relevance uh, in these concepts that we've been batting around for these for this hour. And that's one reason I think it's that that we spend so much time uh, studying them still to this day.
3: Mm. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Milan, why don't we go to you next? I have just one, one thought. I think, you know, the lessons from both, I think they are still valid, you know, many of the things that were much they are written is still, I think, great value for us to study. And I'm happy that SMP is doing that, you know, for us here and also for the country. But I think, you know, the one thing what we can get, I think, from all is that we should be not overly focused on sea control. We have to think about sea denial. These are not the same thing because methods or, uh, you know, achieving sea control and sea denial are different, and so any navy should be properly educated and trained to do the both, based on the situation. For example, you know, if we look, you know, in this power competition thing, if we would have Russia and China allied with us, we might be forced or strategically on defensive initially. You know, so we had to be ready for that. You know, or in some other part of the or, or the globe. You know, so so I think that's the only one thing. I think that they need to have more. Uh, I think less uh, absolute view or sea control, and uh, thinking also about uh, sea denial. Again, sea denial doesn't mean being passive; it means being active, tactically, operationally, while being strategically on defensive. Awesome, thank you, Milan. Kevin, one with you?
1: Um, a few minutes ago, uh, Milan said something I think was extraordinarily poignant, and this is that. You can't just look at technologies to understand new strategic ideas. You really need to also think in terms of history and give it a multiple perspective approach in this one. And I think that's what Mahan and Corbett do for us today. They're not perfect. You know, there are things like fortress fleet that may not apply anymore. Uh, the application of how Mahan looks at concentration and Corbett looks at concentration is gonna vary with today, how we look at sea control versus command of the sea. there, There are nuanced differences, but what I think the two of them do is they give us ideas on a continuum from the grand strategic level of the elements of sea power and the importance of sea power in the international environment, this nexus of naval and economic power coming together in an integrated fashion and the value that gives a country, both at the time Mahan wrote and the time that we write uh, live in today, down through the various strategic combinations that the two of them put forward, um, not the least of which are Corbett's writings extolling the whole idea that you need a package of elements of power, this whole idea that you need to have the army and the navy as parts of one force. He's writing before there's an air force, before there's a space force, but I can see him in his writings expanding into those regards as well. And I think their ideas, their theories give us a a stepping stone, not for us to accept them carte blanche by any means, but to look at them critically and see where they apply. And when they don't apply, let's try and figure out what is different and what has changed. And it gives us this great point of departure for critical analysis, for us to be able to think about their theories and think about naval strategy and sea power today in a more comprehensive framework. Thank you, John.
0: Outstanding. All right, gentlemen, thank you for your time. As always, it is uh, uh, entertaining, educational, and I wrote down gear of course, I won't mess that up with you, Nicole again. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> but thank you for everybody's time today. And we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you. Okay, thanks.